You're listening to Writer's Forum on WRBH. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and our guest today is author Dion James. She's an associate professor in English at Holy Cross University. Her writings have been featured in various journals, such as the Louisville Review, News Stories from the South, and Bayou Magazine. She's written several books, but we'll be talking about, and she'll be reading from her book of 22 essays entitled Table Scraps and Other Essays. Welcome to the show, Miss James. Thank you. Well, let's jump right in. From reading the book, I see that you grew up in rural Sunny Hill, Louisiana, and you indicate that you had a Christian upbringing. How did that affect your writing? Well, I think it affected me greatly in a, in a way that I think it sort of permeates my entire life. You know, my mother was very religious, and I think I came from a, overall a community of religious people, really good people. And so, yeah, you know, growing up with that, uh, of course, that's who I am. So, yeah, let me read. And it, it. comes through in your writing, I it think. It does. Well, let, go ahead and read from us, or uh, read for us, excuse me, an excerpt. Okay. I have a couple of uh, little excerpts here I think will uh, sort of show that. So, I, I think what happens is when it's so much a part of you, it sort of, as I said, it sort of permeates everything that you do. So, all of my writing, uh, every essay probably touches on that Christianity, all those values, all those things that I learned as a kid. So this is from Table Scraps, and I'll just read a little bit of it. Page seven. There were no steps, but one small one. For the back of the house sat low to the ground and held the screen porch that led to the kitchen. The man's wife was chubby, just like our mother, and wore an apron dirtied by use, just like our mother came to the door of the kitchen and opened it for us. Come on in, she said. I figured Yao was getting hungry by now. And we went on in, slowly. Our eyes traveled around the room a couple of times before she told us to sit our tired bodies down at the table. I remember a picture of Jesus on the wall by the table, but not much else. I probably remember that picture because photographs of Jesus, his long, dark hair, that sincere and loving look, on his smooth white face, always fascinated me as a child, but mostly I just got carried along with the moment. My brother Lionel didn't seem to care that we were eating lunch with white folks, strange white folks at that, and he sat down and grabbed at his plate, his hands sort of guarding the plate as though he thought someone would take it. Vanessa sat down next, and then Willie and I followed. I don't remember any children, just the man and his wife. They sat down, and after he said a long and inspiring grace, she started passing the food around. And although they must have talked to us, I don't remember hearing a word. I sat there eating, half eating, half looking at, out the door, and half knowing what it felt like to be one of the Morans. Okay, so that's from Table Scraps. I had uh, a couple more small ones here. This is from uh, Pieces of a Tree, where I talk a lot about growing up in the church. <sighs> On the second Sundays of every month of every year, the junior and senior uh, Sunbeam choirs were appointed to sing. Our ages ranged from the tiniest among us to those proudly proclaiming themselves teenagers. Most of us feared one part of the church service more than we feared the sight of guts, spiders, and snakes. What we feared most was the testimony hour. From the pastor to the deacons and deaconesses to the choir members and all the members of the audience, 
each person was asked to stand up before the church, and more importantly, before God, and give their testimony, their termination. The aged and, aged and wise members of the pulpit and many of the elders of our church would give rousing accounts of how God first saved their souls and how they had once been saved and then become backsliders before God saw fit to bring them back into the fold. One such testimony might go like this, and they give a testimony there. So one other reading. Well, let me, let me interrupt okay. you there if I yeah, can. Yeah, go ahead. You have a diverse <clears throat> background from reading, and you've been an athlete. <clears throat> you've been a, a Navy yeoman. Uh, you were an 18-wheel truck driver, yeah. and now you're a pro, uh, associate professor. You moved from a rural area to a city like New Orleans. How did these life experiences, these different identities, if I can use that, shape your style of writing? Well, I think it. Uh, I am overall a rather eclectic person. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I have a, uh, it makes me more creative, I think. And so, whereas most people might write a memoir and just simply write the memoir, I feel uh, that it's necessary to write the memoir in my own creative way. So, my diverse background, all of that, you know, driving trucks and working for the Girl Scouts and all of that. It just makes me uh, more of, I like to say, an interesting person. So I, I feel that every essay that I have has to reflect that. And it gives you a broader perspective, I it guess, does. in your writing. It does. I think so. Okay. Do you have something else you'd like to read um, before we turn to another question? I also wanted to read this, uh, As Fortune Goes. This mm -hmm. is uh, my father. Uh, I, I think most people, when they read the memoir, will note that, you know, I talk about my mother a lot, but the, the book eventually ends up being about my father. Mm -hmm. And we'll probably discuss that a little bit more. But um, this is him. And this gives a really, really good uh, view into who he was as a person. When we were children, our pastor told us this story of how he had seen an old haggle-looking person on the side of the road, but that he did not stop to help that stranger. His excuse? He didn't like the way the man looked. It was possible that the stranger would have tried to murder him, steal from him. When, he got, uh, when we got home from church, my father was almost livid with disdain for our pastor's actions, as was I. He and I agreed on this. My father said, wouldn't you think a preacher would stop to help the man, even if no one else would? We were both perplexed by the pastor's obliviousness to another human's needs. We surmised that the pastor was scared of dying. Shouldn't he, of all people, be ready to meet his maker and with the briefest of notifications? Apparently not. My father added this to the pastor's other faux pas and what he deemed lapses in pastorly judgment. Once the pastor had boasted, there was a time when I had to eat, all I had to eat was red beans and rice for dinner, to which my father said, I still have to eat red beans and rice for dinner. He seemed perturbed that the pastor was acting like the person he'd set himself up to be, um, a great and supposedly saved man who understood and could commiserate with other people's suffering. If memory serves me, my father was sitting at the table when he said this, a table where he had often denied the neighbor children a seat for dinner. I looked at him with clear eyes, wondering if he seriously didn't see the contradiction in his own living. Wow. Yeah. Let me ask you this. When someone writes a memoir, and really your essays, although we're calling them essays, it really is a memoir. 
when someone writes a memoir or writes about their own life and it includes other people, there's always this question of how honest to be, right? How did you handle writing about real people in your life and telling the truth of your experience, at least as you saw it? Well, I, th- I think that was the most difficult. Um, I was talking to my class last night. I, I teach a, a nonfiction writing course. Um, and we were talking about, well, what, what do you share? And um, it's kind of hard. And um, one of the young ladies had, had shared an essay where she talked about something difficult happening to her, but she couldn't say what. You know, and, and we, you know, discussed it. I said, well, sometimes you're just not ready. And so for a lot of these essays, they sat on the shelf for about 20 years waiting for the moment when I was ready to let go of that. So I have to answer, first of all, I had to learn to let go. And then I had to make peace with uh, everyone else, just, you know, understanding that my need to, to say these things. Um, some of my family, of course, did not agree that the book should be published. And it's, you know, if you've read the memoir, it's not that bad. I mean, a lot of the things that I, I could have said, I did not say. But um, to my father's credit, um, we spent a lot of time in, in his last years, and he constantly asked me to write his story. And so he understood, I think, because we kind of talked about it a little bit, that if I was going to write his story, it was going to be the real story, you know, the good and the bad. And um, so it became something that I came to admire about him, the fact that he understood he made a lot of mistakes and that maybe his story could possibly help other people. So, I, yeah. I, I see. Well, let me ask, since you mentioned your father, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but you describe him at one point in the book as your mother's, quote, life stripper, gathering up and carrying off much of her happiness, taking it out the door of the house with him and then never bringing it back, close quote. But he also sought forgiveness in his later years, as I understand it. Did that come easy for you? No, because, again, um, I think I had to figure out how to forgive him, first of all, because we didn't have that good of a relationship. He was my dad, and, you know, mostly I was gone for all those years in the military and, you know, working. I lived in Wisconsin for a while. And so until he got cancer, you know, I hadn't seen him in a lot of years, and we didn't have a close relationship. So it, it afforded me that opportunity to come back and just get to know him again and to realize that I had not forgiven him for a lot of the things he, that he had done to my mother and to the family in our youth. So, mm-hmm. Well, and forgiveness, this dovetails with your Christianity, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It does, definitely. Um, if, if you don't forgive, I guess you just carry that anger around with you, right? You do. You do. And, uh, you know, I've had a lot of people say, well, how do you forgive him? You know, how do you just go on and, you know, for example, he had, you know, several children outside the family. And it's like, what? You know, you hang out with those kids? You're, yeah, they're my half-siblings, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Why would you not? Um, you have to get over that somehow. So just holding on to it and trying to, you know, hate people for things that aren't their problem, you know. Speaks so, high, it speaks highly of you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. No, I was just going to say it. It, um, it shows a lot of growth, I think, uh, to be able to do that. And so the book itself, I think, helped me get there because uh, I realized somewhere in there that the book was not finished until all of this came about. And it became somewhat uh, of an arc to the story, this act of forgiveness for my father. And so when you get to the, the last of the essays, which I'll read some a little bit later, but that shows 
that we came over that arc and the resolution was that I did forgive him. Let, let me ask you this. When you're writing a memoir, at least this was my experience, even though you think you understand something, when you have to start writing it out in a way that will be understandable for others, you tend to learn different things about yourself. Mm -hmm. Is there Are there any things that you can cite that as you wrote this, you, you had that kind of aha moment or, you know, epiphany about things you learned? Well... I mean, I think that was a part of it, learning that, you know, I had not forgiven him because if you had asked me up until that point, you know, yeah, you, you love your father. Yeah, I love my father. He's, you're okay with him. Yeah, we're fine, you know. It's just sort of superficially fine. Um, but I think learning that, you know, I really did have to spend time, and I think that's why, and, and I often said, my mother, my mother died first about, I don't know, 10 years before my dad but what that afforded us, the, the siblings, was an opportunity to get to know him and to go through that act of forgiving him for everything. So, you know, all those trips that I took to the VA, taking him to his appointments, uh, you know, all those types of things, just getting to know him, getting to figure out who he was as a person. So, I, I mean, I, I learned that, for one thing, you know, I had been hating a lot of the relationships I had been in with men Possibly because of my father, the way I felt about him. Mm -hmm. So in forgiving him, I was able to move forward in that way. That's understandable. You know, Let me ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to jump ahead a little bit. Can you read from The Woodpecker, which I think sure, really, sure, sure. really uh, is a good way to top off this part of this discussion? Let's see. I don't know how much time we have oh, to read good time. this. But, um, mm -hmm. You've got time. It's a short one. Um, I think I'm going to try to read this entire thing because I think we have time for this. Go ahead. Okay, so it's only two pages. The Woodpecker. My father's eyes are open, or they blink to his rhythm in nature. In a gown he is worn home from the hospital. He sits at the edge of the bed, soaked to his bottom, unable to go to the bathroom properly on his own. His diaper needs to be changed. My diety is wet, he says, unashamed and with a smile. He has not lost his cool, irreverent sense of humor. He has boys' eyes, eyes that wish to see where he will be going. He is holding on. I know with all his strength, he wants to reach 90, just half a year away. Oh, the party my girls will give me, he says. And it is as clear as anything to be imagined. He will make it. Screw those doctors. What do they know? He waits for me to come to him to cross the small room of the Katrina trailer, I have been sitting at the table still eating my breakfast. I cannot help but see him as he is. Aren't those his toes beginning to curl, signaling the end of his long and passionate life? But optimism flitters all around him, pecking at his heart. Ah, the sound of it. He listens. Tap, 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 tap. The woodpecker is no more than 30 feet outside the window. It hangs by its claws from a broken hickory tree that has its top missing. I'm sure the tree has, was healthy in its youth and grew, it grew even stronger against the uncooperativeness of time. But when it grew old or wasn't properly nourished, which left it vulnerable to a most obtrusive wind. The bird's color is there, a full red slice down its small crown, which makes it male. The wings are black and white ridges with a splash of red barely visible on the bird's tummy. My father and I have spent many moments aching on the bird's red-bellied beauty. Remember the one we used to have in the yard, I asked him. 
that was at our first house all those years ago. As a young girl, I would sit in the grass and wait for the giant woodpecker, a full red head and impressive black wings. After we've listened for a long while, my father says, yeah, but this one's better. The bird, it moves in circles around the old tree, tap, 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 tap. I re imagine the sound reminds my father of the weapons he used in war, of the sound of a gunfire from a distance, tap, 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 tap. My father and I have history. We're both people of nature. We tried to save an ailing chicken hawk one summer. The bird, in his final hours, searched my father and me out as we cleared away weeds from beneath fine oak trees, which simply wanted to grow freely and give off an air of greatness and indignation. We found the bird waiting near our truck and later took it to the nearest vet clinic, but we were too late. We used to ride in my sports car with the windows down as we crossed the causeway from the country to New Orleans or to Jackson and back, rushing to his doctor's visits. We were both troubled by the VA. He, the real soldier, having fought for his country in World War II, and me, who served the Navy well as a yeoman but never pointed a rifle at another soul. On the car rides home, we'd complain about the state of the VA, VA hospitals and how carelessly they sometimes treated the vets. Often we'd stop at diners and he'd tell me his life stories once again, sure that one day I would write them down. The stories never changed, but remain planted like small trees growing in my memory. How he got shot in the leg in the illusions, how he came home from the military and found his first wife shacked up with another man, how he married my mother on Valentine's Day, how sorry he was to have mistreated her over the years of their marriage. We'd sit in old booths and eat omelets, and he'd smile as though he were lighter, having spoken his truth once more, neither of us aware how quickly those moments were passing. When I go to him and help him up from the bed, I feel guilty, mostly for blaming him for so long. Perhaps the blame shifted, shifted to guilt. It could be why I am here now, doing all the dirty work. Slowly, he le leans his bent, frail body into mine. He has the walk of a baby bird, his feet a slight rhythm, a sure tap here and then there not steady like music or the tick of a clock, but it's his rhythm. We hear the, we near the bathroom and he slows even more. We both hear the tap, 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 so close beside, I'm sorry, beyond the window. That is really excellent. Well, thank you. Um, let me ask you, that we shift gears away from your dad for a moment. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that your mom was a great storyteller in her own right. Is you think, do you think that's part of where you get your love of writing and telling stories from? I think so. I think so. I think my mom was really a good storyteller because she would often tell us about, you know, growing up on a farm. And um, both she and my, my father um, worked the farm during Depression years and didn't really have a chance to go to school, so neither of them finished uh, school. And so a lot of stories about growing up and how poor they were and all of that. But my dad, uh, I think his stories were a little bit more adventuresome because he had been away to the military and he he came back and told us stories about giant mosquitoes and, you know, all kinds of strange things. And so, you know, I think I, I learned to be imaginative from him. So maybe how to tell stories because my mom was always telling us things, but also how to create and be imaginative, I, I think, from, from my father. Yeah. Interesting. You've got another 
essay entitled Willie Verne, I think. Can I get you to read an excerpt from that? Let me see, page 60. Um, one thing about telling stories, because I write fiction, fictional stories as well as, as uh, personal essays, um, one thing I think that I've been able to do because of my imagination, my creativity, is to you know hopefully tell a story well. And so the section that I'm reading here is, the entire essay has been about my sister Willie who um, died a somewhat miserable life, the last years of her life. She was in a lot of pain and uh, the doctors really couldn't figure out what was wrong with her and she had you know sort of this scaliness on her skin and you know it's just really painful and um, so when she really got to the point where she was in the hospital and it looked as though she was not going to make it um, a, a writer sometimes has to slow down a moment and has to take you away from that, that a moment that is too powerful and so this is a moment where I get us away from all of this sadness and depression that's happening at the hospital and I tell of a dream that I recently had. Most people don't believe this, but about a month before Willie died, I dreamed that a train was bearing down on my parents' house. I ran from room to room, warning everyone to get out before the train tore through the house. When the train arrived, it pulled up alongside the house just beyond one of the 200-year-old oak trees in the front yard and stopped. I stepped into the train. I noticed that there were no empty seats on board. Most of the people sat looking straight ahead, their faces gray and motionless. I looked to the rear of the train and saw what appeared to be my sister, though it wasn't a particular sister, but a composite of all of them, and two children, the younger of which looked remarkably like me as a child. Clothed in bright colors, these three people clashed against the grayness of everyone else on the train. Suddenly the train started to move again and I told my sister that we must get off. Hurry, I yell, get the kids, we've got to jump. One of the two children, the smallest one who looked like me, ran to the front of the train where I stood and took my hand. I wrapped her in my arms and jumped. When I looked back at the train, which had picked up speed and was already far beyond me, I saw my sister standing in at the ledge where I had stood. She was holding the hand of the other child. Soon, the two of them disappeared from my sight, leaving only the chugging, helpless sounds of the death train. And so, yeah, I literally had that dream a couple of weeks, maybe, before my sister died. And what, what do you think the metaphor in there is? Uh, the death train itself, the grayness of it always just strikes me. Um, because in most of my dreams, I'm not sure I even see color, but I saw vividly uh, the life that the tiny child who was me uh, had versus my sister who remained on the train uh, that was gray. So, um, you know, every time I think about it, uh, I always say, you know, if you're listening, nature is speaking to you. Mm -hmm. and it was definitely telling me something there. For folks that are listening that might be interested in writing memoirs, or perhaps they're writing memoirs already, um, what advice would you give them about creating universal themes that would appeal to others while still telling their own story? Hmm. Well, I think it starts with what you just said, telling your own story. 
um, sometimes we want to tell our story, but we feel maybe a little bit responsible for other people. You, you first of all have to get comfortable with, with what your story is. And until you get to that point where you can sit down and write that story, forget about who's not going to like it, huh? who's going to be upset and all of that. Just tell your story because your story is your version of it. And so you have to tell it and you have to tell it well. So I think that's the first thing. And then everything else seems to, you know, it seems to come from that, I think. Um, every thing that I've ever written, and, and I'll say this, I didn't write really good memoir until my mother died. Uh, and so I had a friend say to me once, well, you know, it's the pain, the pain of that loss that's making you such a good writer. And I said, well, I don't think so. Uh, but maybe, maybe it is. But what that afforded me was the opportunity to really just sit down and look inside my soul and, and write down the things that were true to me. So there has to be a moment where you're just giving of yourself and you're not being stingy about it. You're just putting it all out there, no matter what it's saying, you just have to say it. So uh, a lot of times I, I've read people's memoirs and you feel like, oh, I'm just a little bit cheated here, you know, where where is this? Why didn't they tell me about this? Or, you know, th there should never be that in memoir. You should always feel as though I've got it. They told me everything. They went into their soul and they they bare their souls to me. So, and, and do you think that a good memoir, a good memoir writer has to make themselves or leave themselves vulnerable? Very much so. Um, it's a really vulnerable place. Um, and, um, I mean, lucky you're there by yourself being vulnerable. No one's going to knock you over the head while you're vulnerable. It's like, yeah, you're that's vulnerable. Right, that's right. But, it, but it's also <laughs> cathartic in a way, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I often tell people I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have the opportunity to write a lot of these essays after my mother died. Um, it just released a lot of the tension because I'm a quiet kind of, you know, person who keeps it myself, and um, I'm not talking to people quite a bit, so... Yeah. Um, if I hadn't had the ability, and I was taking a um, um, creative writing course at University of New Orleans when, when, when it happened, so it was really um, an opportunity for me to You think that was good. necessary, and your mother's passing before you would be able to confront this? I think so. <clears throat> I, I think it really was because it, it took me to a place and I always say my mother's death changed me, mm -hmm. you know, you think about grief in terms of, you know, uh, how, how big or small it is. That was a mountaintop. I mean, that was the one that, you know, anything else could happen to me in my life would never affect me as much as that because my mother was so special um, and she is still so missed. So, yeah. To, to have to go through that, it changed me, it made me someone else, and it just forced me to start thinking inner thoughts and, you know, why am I here? And, you know, all those questions about life that I just hadn't answered before. I was just flittering around through life, enjoying it. I didn't have a care in the world. Well, you have, to some degree, I guess, when your parents are alive, you have them in front of you, mm -hmm. kind of, for lack yes. of a better word, blocking or providing cover or whatever, and mm -hmm. when they're gone... You have to face the world without that. You have to face the world. That's true. Well, this has been terribly enjoyable. Well, uh, I'm you. not sure that's a good phrase, but this has been very enjoyable. <laughs> thank you. Uh, but that's all the time we have for today. We've been talking 
with Ms. James about her collection of essays entitled Table Scraps and Other Essays, which is available on Amazon and I assume some other locations. This is the Writers' Forum, and I'm your host, Mike Tusa. Thank you for being with me today, Ms. James. Thank you. Thank you for having me.